Well, thank you, Father Lee. Um, now, now there's a handout. Uh, do you all have the handout to help follow what I'm going to rip through? And I want to leave a good amount of time for discussion, so I'm, uh, so I'm going to rip through this so we have enough time for good discussion. So what is liturgy? How is it connected to sacraments? I'm probably going <clears> to <throat> tell a lot of you things you already know. Um, I'd say liturgy is an answer to the disciples' request of Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And so in other words, how do we pray? How do we pray? It's behind Paul's statement in Romans 8, we do not know how to pray as we ought. It helps explain why God struck down Nadab and, as they say in Hebrew, Avihu, when they offered unholy fire. They, they thought, that's an, um, Nadab and Abihu, they could figure out on their own how to worship rather than recognizing that God had already given precise instruction on how Israel was to worship. So liturgy is worship also, and now here's another way of looking at it. Now these are all different ways of looking at liturgy. It's also worship that joins in Christ's adoration of his Father in his manhood, Christ as a man. Not as God, but as man. He adored the Father. We are joining in the Son's adoration of the Father in liturgy. And the liturgy is the Son's adoration of the Father. In that sense, the liturgy is Christ. It's not just something that helps us to get to Christ. Christ animates it. He lives in it. He inspired it because it comes down to us from the early church, which was inspired by the Spirit of the Son in his adoration of the Father. So it's participating with Christ in his offering himself and his body to the Father. It's joining with the saints and the angels in their celestial worship in Revelation 4 and 5. Now the purpose of the world and the purpose of worship are the same, that God might be all in all. The heart of worship is sacrifice in which we surrender what is precious to us. Only then does God set it apart and fill it with his blessing. Then what God sets apart becomes holy, for sacrifice means in Latin, you know, sacer and, and fatere, to make holy, and holy in Hebrew means set apart. Our worship is of the triune God, who in the Father gave up the Son to be sacrificed by the Spirit to make us holy and to bring all the cosmos into the holy realm under the lordship of Christ and the Father. Now, in the sacred meal of weekly liturgical worship, or daily, we join in the sacrificial offering which the Son makes to the Father, and we pray that others would be joined to that sacrifice so that we and they might be filled with God's life and God would be all in all. As we see God in that offering of the Son, we see God for who he is in his beauty and glory. And we are drawn into him and into praise to him and his Father by the Spirit. Liturgy is at least 3,000 years old. It's rooted in God's instructions to Israel on how he wanted to be worshipped. In Exodus 19 and 29, 2 Kings 23, 2 Esdras, there's a repeated pattern. First, there's fast and purification. Second, there's proclamation of the word after praise, adoration, and supplication. Third, there's acceptance of the word, renewal of the covenant. 
which is key to our understanding of Old Testament history, and I would say also the New Covenant. It's another covenant renewal ceremony. Uh, you know, Jeremiah 31, since there's no Hebrew separate word for renew as opposed to new, or renew, or renewal as opposed to new, I would suggest that what Jesus is getting at when he quotes a Jeremiah 31 is a renewal, another covenant renewal, just as all the good kings who came in after bad kings renewed the covenant. And this is a covenant renewal uh, ceremony. First fasting, then proclamation of the word uh, uh, after praise, then acceptance of the word in, in a covenant renewal ceremony. By sacrificial offerings, there was always a sacrifice and then a, a meal after the sacrifice in all these covenant renewal ceremonies in the Old Testament history. Uh, and the meal was introduced by a solemn prayer of thanksgiving. A, you know, uh, uh, Eucharist means thanksgiving. Also in first century Judaism, it's Sabbath meal, and on each festival in the Jewish year, you have the same sort of thing. A community meal with a breaking of bread, solemn thanksgiving prayer over the cup of blessing, which which, which Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, in which God's past great acts of redemption are recounted. So, um, liturgy recognizes that, that we were made for worship, but not just any worship. All humans worship something. They, their team, their family, success, money, their country. Some worship the true God. Some worship the true God of Israel. Some, some worship the God of Israel, who is the true God. You know, the Christian God is the God of Israel, the, the father of his son, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. Some worship the God of Israel, who, who, whose Messiah is his son, in any way they please, and they think they can make it up the way they one, one, um, want to worship. But others seek to worship him as the historic church has found to be the way that he directed from ancient Israel through to the early church and then historic Orthodox worship. So liturgy is a way of worshiping full of beauty and order and majestic mystical depth. It's fleshing out the meaning of scripture, really. It's using every day in the Lord's Day and church feasts and the whole church year to explore the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the triune God and his history of redemption. Now the true worshiper is the Son who gives himself eternally to the Father by the Spirit, not only in his death on the cross, but also in his life and resurrection. I mentioned in the sermon this morning, you know, Romans 5.10 teaches us that we were not saved by the death of Christ. We were saved by the life of Christ. We were reconciled by his death. Romans 5.10. So, in Christ's life and resurrection and his, and his eternal priesthood um, uh, um, before the Father's throne. There, he's before the, the uh, Father's throne. He's continually offering his life. You know, Hebrews 9.24 says, now, now Christ is offering his blood before the throne of the Father. That's Hebrews 9.12. And in 9.24 is that critically important adverb, now, now, it's going on right now. He's offering his life and death on behalf of his ever-growing body to the Father, offering the blood of the cross for all members of his body and the merit of his perfect life, Romans 5.10 again, for each of those members. And so in other words, 
the son is continually offering the sacrifice of his life and death to the father on our behalf. Now, remember, sacrifice means to make holy. As the son offers his life and death for us in the final and perfect sacrifice, he makes us increasingly holy and acceptable to the father. Now, increasingly, sanctification, the gradual growth in holiness, uh, you know, sanctus is the Latin word for holy. Sanctification, our lifelong process of becoming holy by our participation in the life of the church, particularly the sacraments, and our participation in the cross, which you don't have to go out and look for. God will bring it right to you. Um, by joining us to that sacrifice, which includes his perfect life and death and resurrection, when, when we participate in, in, in the ordo, as Latin for or, order of the historic liturgy, we participate. Think of 1 Corinthians 10, 16 here, where, where, where Paul says, the cup that we bless is a koinonia, a participation in of the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is a koinonia, a sharing in, a participation in the body of Christ. It's not just a symbol. We aren't just remembering what happened 2,000 years ago. We are participating in the humanity of the Son of God, not his divinity. I mean, that was Zwingli, and that's Baptist. You know, somehow we participate in the divinity of Christ, which even, you know, as Zwingli said, um, in the Lord's Supper, in, in a way that's not possible outside the Lord's Supper, but the great historic church has always taught that we participate not just in the divinity of Christ in the Lord's Supper, but also his humanity, his body and blood in some mysterious and cosmic and mind-blowing way and soul-filling way. So we participate in this eternal sacrificial offering by the Son of his life and death for, for, for um, his body. Now we offer our lives as we participate in the offering of himself to the Father. Our offering is accepted only as it becomes a part of his perfect offering. Now, Paul says that our participation in the liturgy of the table, which is the Eucharist, is an anamnesis, key word in the New Testament. It's typically badly translated in the English as memorial because it, that, 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 that reduces it to an intellectual uh, um, remembering. But um, in Greek, the word anamnesis really means bringing the past into the present as if the past is happening now and we are participating in it. And actually, the past is happening now in this case because in, in the sacrament, we are lifted up out of linear time, lifted up into eternity, in, into God's eternity. We're where past, present, and future are all in God's eternal present, and where the sacrifice of Christ is now in eternal time, and we are participating in this right now. This is very Jewish. It's very Hebrew. And Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. And for the Hebrews, when, when they participate in the Passover, even, even if you go to the synagogue at Passover uh, this year, and you participate in the Jewish Passover liturgy. The past becomes present, and the, you know, Jews don't say in the Passover uh, you know, liturgy, we remember what our fathers did when they went through the waters of the Red Sea. No, they say, we are going through the waters of the Red Sea right now. 
The past has come into the present, or they are lifted up out of linear time, and they are participating now in God's eternity where the Passover is a present event. So the past is now. God is once again passing over those who had their door lintels sprinkled with the blood of the Passover lamb. God was saving them from slavery once again in the now, not just back then. Now Paul, a Jew, is clearly thinking of this when, when he suggests in 1 Corinthians 11 that in the Eucharist we are mysteriously reconnected to the original sacrifice of Calvary that made holy. And we are once again being made holy through that sacrifice. It was once for all, yes. It was an act in the past, yes. Not to be repeated, yes. But we are miraculously brought back to participate in it. Or it is brought forward in time so that we can share in it. The past and the present become contemporaneous through the sacrament. Jesus' blood thus washes us afresh. And his body is there to give us life today. Not symbolically, but really, ontologically. It, it takes away from us the disadvantage of living thousands of years later. But now, this was Thomas Aquinas's magnificent uh, point that he makes in his Summa Theologica. It brings the past into the present so we can become contemporaries of the original events, and we are at no disadvantage uh, by, being, by living in the 21st century instead of the first century, hanging on, looking over the shoulders of the apostles. The mysteries of Christ's life are, expended, are extended in time through the sacraments of the church. Thus, uh, thus as Louis Bouillet wrote, thus the liturgy makes us hear God's word in Christ and makes us experience in our own lives the power of that word of God as it's shown forth in the cross. Now Paul also says that in the Eucharist we proclaim his death. So in other words, the sacrament shows the gospel while the preached word tells the gospel. Every sacrament is a word made visible. And this is why the disciples at Emmaus had their eyes opened only after the breaking of the bread and not even after Jesus had explained from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Just think if you and I had been there at that Bible study. What a Bible study. Or what a graduate seminar that was. All the, from all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. God made us as creatures who need not only to hear but also to see and taste and touch only in the historic ordo do we get to experience God and his redemptive acts through all five of our senses. So the whole liturgy is God's word and also God's action. He speaks and acts through us when we accept the gift of the historic ordo and join the saints and angels in Christ offering himself to the Father. So too in the liturgy of the word, the first half of the ordo, we are not just reading about Christ and preaching about Christ, no, Christ actually speaks through the red word up here and the priest's word up there. Christ is mystically, mystically present as we worship the Father in and through him, joining in his worship of the Father and his adoration of the Father. And, and that's a better word because, uh, you know, one member of the Trinity as God does not worship the other two members of the Trinity. But the one person the Trinity was also man, and in, in his manhood he adores the Father and lets us participate in his adoration of the Father. In, in that offering, he speaks to us and ministers uh, to us, feeding us with his word before he later feeds us with his body and blood. 
The early church saw, saw no separation between liturgy and, the, and, and uh, uh, the Christian's inner life. They could not conceive of the personal life of faith and prayer without its finding its fulfillment in the liturgy, and then the liturgy feeding and growing that inner life. So there was no conflict between their prayer at home and their prayer closet and their participation in the Eucharist on Sunday. Well, actually, in the early church, it was probably every day. You know, Augustine tell, writes this famous letter to his mother, and his mother was shocked to find when she goes up to Italy to follow him that, um, you know, Catholics, of course, everybody was Catholic then, did some parts of the liturgy differently. And Augustine says, yes, mother, and in fact, you will be shocked to hear this, but in some churches in the empire, up, up, up here on the other side of, of, of the ocean, some Christians have Eucharist only once a week. Only once a week. So the norm was every day. So um, so, so, so they saw the liturgy feeding and growing their inner life because in the liturgy we find our place in the body of Christ joined before the throne. Paul said each member is part of the body and cannot thrive without participation in that body. Each finds its special role in the whole worship of the mystical body of Jesus Christ, that is, of the head and his members. So liturgy is not just Sunday morning also, but it's the whole church year and the whole week of life. There's morning and evening prayer passed down from the historic church with beautiful ways to worship with saints all across the world. And special days, um, special ways of worshiping on special feast days throughout the year, uh, including days dedicated to the lives of various saints to give us hope and examples. So today is the feast of St. Matthias, the um, replacement for Judas. Not, and, and, and not to mention every season of the church year in which unique aspects of the grand story of redemption are enacted. Um, you know, John, John Henry Newman wrote that Christ is an infinite mystery. Well, the Trinity is an infinite mystery and so is the Son of God, an infinite mystery, with infinite aspects, and that was the word that Newman used, aspects, infinite aspects. And every part of the liturgy, every season of the church year, every day in the church year, because Tuesday in the seventh Sunday um, after Epiphany is not the same as Tuesday in, uh, uh, after the sixth Sunday of Epiphany. Different things are taught through the lectionary and even seen in the liturgy, in the sacrament, uh, week to week in the season of Epiphany, which, which we are now. And so Newman's point was that, you know, the Trinity is, in, is an infinite mystery with an infinite number of aspects. And every part of the liturgy and every day of the church year, we see a different aspect of the infinite beauty of God, and the whole Christian life in the church militant on this side of the veil 
is each day, as it were, each hour, uh, um, as it were, seeing, participating in another one of the infinite number of aspects of the infinite beauty of the triune God. And so that's why we need every day of the church here. That's why we need every season of the church here. That's why we need every year in our lives to see more and more and to experience more and more of the infinite beauty of the triune God. So, whoa. Uh, now this goes till... Oh, good. Or, or 1020. Okay, good, good. So, um, who, who would like to start? Um, sure, yeah. Sure. Sure. Okay, so I think what, what you're asking is why, in the history of the church, why has it sometimes been put, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us, and in fact, in some versions, uh, they add the words once for all, and then other times it's Christ, it's put in the present tense, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Um, I, I, I think basically two different ways of seeing the Reformation. Uh, the one way of seeing the Reformation is this is a radical break with Catholic un Roman Catholic understandings and also Eastern Orthodox uh, um, understandings um, that they that that the Roman Church and the Eastern and so Roman Constantinople both I mean the church for the 1500 years for the first 1500 years for the most part wrongly um, said that Passover sacrifice was still continuing was still ongoing and why is that wrong according to some of the reformers not, not all it was wrong because it suggests that the church participates, continues to participate in that once-for-all sacrifice, and, and, and what's wrong with that? Well, that, that suggests that the church contributes to its own salvation. And what's wrong with that? Well, that suggests salvation by good works, that we're saving ourselves, and that's an utter repudiation of the great Reformation teaching that we can't do anything to save ourselves, that we're totally dependent on what Christ in his perfect life and perfect death have done. So that's why um, sometimes you hear the words once for all and it's all done, it's just in the past tense. Now, the Catholic view of it 
And I, I would say the traditional Anglican view of it, and you see it even in Richard Hooker, uh, now um, is that, that it is ongoing. We can participate in it, but that doesn't mean that um, simply because we participate in it and we cooperate with what Christ is doing, we cooperate only by grace, and our participation is all by grace. And whose grace is it? It's the grace of Christ. We are participating in Christ's adoration of his Father, and his perfect life is cleansing our very imperfect lives as we're worshiping. His perfect death uh, is sealing and reconstituting our previous separation from the Father by our sins. Um, it's, it's reconstituting our ongoing reconciliation. His Christ, his death, um, you know, uh, you know um, reconciles us. His life saves us is what Paul says in Romans 5 and 10. So it's basically the difference, I'd, I'd say, for Anglicans between Cranmer and Hooker. Now, um, you know, Cranmer was a nominalist. And uh, Cranmer was really influenced by Luther, and I think that was a good thing. You know, uh, um, there were a lot of late uh, medieval, 14th and 15th century uh, um, um, excesses, liturgically and theologically, principally, and, and, and most of us probably came out of a Protestant background, um, uh, principally the, the teaching of semi-Pelagianism, which which was indeed rife in uh, Scotus, Occam, and Beale in the 14th and 15th centuries. And semi-Pelagianism is, uh, is not Pelagianism. It doesn't teach uh, that our works save us, but it does teach that God looks on our imperfect works, looks on our sincerity, on our trying, our efforts to do as well as we can do. And on the basis of that, he saves us by the work of Christ. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a true synergism, God and us working together to save us. Um, so Cranmer, I think, was rightly reacting. Now, I'm, I'm giving you far, far more than you asked. Sorry. But, but Cranmer, in my opinion, was rightly reacting against, he, he was rightly, uh, he was rightly uh, um, reacting against the semi-Pelagianism of of the late medieval period, taught by the nominalists, by, by Scotus and Occam and Beale. Um, and, and he was putting new stress upon the once-for-all-ness of Christ's sacrifice. Um, but, but he picked up a lot of the nominalism that, 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 that was in the air. I mean, it was in the air everybody breathed, all the reformers, including Luther. And so Cranmer tended to tended to suggest, therefore, that it was only a once-for-all act, and it, and it, was not on, it was not ongoing, and we are not participating in, in that. Our task on, on Sunday morning is simply to, to recollect, remember, that Christ died for our sins, and therefore, our sins have been forgiven. Now, Hooker, now Hooker comes along in the next generation, and Hooker uh, says... 
in effect, I mean, he never says this explicitly, but in, in, in effect, Cranmer was a brilliant liturgist for us English, a master of language. I mean, he was absolutely brilliant in, you know, the way he took the seven hours of the medieval um, monastic prayers and put them into two, a morning and evening prayer, to, to try to bring... Uh, you know, monastic a devotion into the churches, the life of the community. It was brilliant. It was beautiful. It was a majestic work, the Book of Common Prayer. But as a theologian, he, he, uh, he frankly was not the best. And Hooker says we need to be much more in continuity theologically with our last 1,500 years of church history and great theology and great Eucharistic theology. So Hooker, all, all, you know, although he was something of, of, of a receptionist, he definitely believed that in the Eucharist we have the real presence of the body and blood of Christ. For, for those who believe, thus a receptionist. Um, you know, not for a Muslim who walks in and, and takes communion. Um, and he's much more open to the idea of an ongoing... Uh, um, the, uh, the, the Passover sacrifice is, present tense, uh, um, um, is going on. So, so, sorry I took so long to, to answer that, that question. See, Cranmer was, um, he did not believe in the real presence of the body and blood. Uh, he wrote, you know, he only wrote two treatises, and they both had to do with the Eucharist. And the first one is the most important one. Uh, it's, it's pretty long, about 250 pages, and it's, a, it's an emphatic rejection of the real presence in Holy Communion. Uh, you know, and that's why Anglicanism is uh, divided between those who are very low with Cranmer in their sacramental theology and those who are much higher with Hooker in their sacramental theology, much more uh, in continuity with the great sacramental tradition. In Cranmer, you have a real break with the great sacramental tradition. But, you know, once again, I, I mean, my view is that Cranmer was this gift of God uh, as a liturgical craftsman. Um, yeah, sir. Yes. Right. Yeah. The question was, uh, uh, let's say I'm in conversation with uh, someone from a, a low church background, and how do you explain the real presence of Christ? And I assume you mean in the Eucharist. Um, yeah, and I do that all the time. Um, since, since most people from low church uh, you know, a background have a really radical view of sola scriptura, I go to scriptura. Uh, I go to scripture. And I go to 1 Corinthians you know, 10, 16 uh, first. Where, you know, and, you know, I was a Baptist preacher for five years. Uh, and I used to preach that the Lord's Supper, it's the Lord's Supper, it's not the Eucharist. Don't use that word Eucharist. Uh, 
um, it's just, it just reminds us, you know, intellectually of what happened 2,000 years ago so that we can be grateful in our Christian life. And, you know, I had the great blessing of growing up as a Roman Catholic, and I went to a Jesuit high school in New York City where um, I, I learned classical Greek for three years. Now, and I, and I had no idea why I was doing Greek. Uh, there, there were three tracks. There, there, there was a the modern science track, and I was lousy in science. There was a the modern language track, and I, I, and I was a terrible stutterer. I still stutter. And if you're lucky, you'll get to hear a little bit of it in, in, in the sermon. Um, uh, and I couldn't do modern languages because I couldn't talk. So the only thing left was classical Greek. I said, oh, all right, I'll learn classical Greek. And I had this brilliant Greek teacher, Robert Morasco, who went on to write Broadway plays. Uh, and he taught me, and he taught us in sophomore year all of classical Greek. I mean, it was incredibly hard, but, but he was such a great teacher. And then we read Homer, our junior and seniors in high school. We read much of the Iliad and the Odyssey in Greek. So then, then when I'm a freshman at the University of Chicago, uh, my Catholic family, all nine of us back in the suburbs, all kinds of strange things are happening. It was the Catholic charismatic uh, movement. And so long, long story short, um, I had a conversion experience through that. And, um, and all of a sudden, you know, somebody told me, now, Jerry, uh, did you know the New Testament is written in Greek? I said, really? <laughs> so, I, so I turned to the New Testament, and it was, you know, for someone who's done classical Greek, Koine Greek is like kindergarten. I mean, it's, I, I mean, some are more difficult, the book of Hebrews. But, I mean, John is like, you know, you know it's like baby talk. So, um, uh, so after preaching as a Baptist preacher for five years, you know, I, I left the Catholic Church, you know, the horror of Babylon, and, and became an evangelical. <laughs> and at, uh, after college, I joined the Christian commune and met my wife there. We had our first two kids in communes all over the Midwest and down here in Texas, way, way down south of here in, in Mercedes, Texas, right, right, you know, right by the border of Mexico. You know, we lived in a Christian commune down there, and then, then we left and we went up to this Christian commune, and they were all related. We bought an old hotel in downtown Fargo, and two, uh, 200 of us from, from ages, you know, um, um, in the womb to 80, lived in this old hotel. And so I became a, you know, you know, a convinced, uh, you know, fundamentalist, and then evangelical. Uh, but I was adamant against any real presence in the Lord's Supper. That was obviously wrong. And so then I'm a, a Baptist preacher while I'm getting my Ph.D. at the University of Iowa at a little Baptist church in the cornfields of, of, of Iowa. And I'm starting to read historical theology. And I'm starting to see that these medieval theologians and these medieval preachers they might have been real Christians. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm shocked. And then I started to um, one day I open up my Greek New Testament 
and, and I'd been, you know, doing my quiet times in the Greek New Testament, and I come upon 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup which you bless is a koinonia, a participation in the, um, the blood of Christ. The bread which you break is a koinonia, a participation in the body of Christ. I go, whoa. So that's where I start with, 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 with my low church friends and students. And then I say, you know, then I turn to baptism. And all of a sudden, I look in Romans 6, and Paul says, when you're baptized, you're baptized into the death of Christ. And go, whoa. I thought baptism was simply my declaring to the world that I'm a follower of Jesus. But in Romans 6, and then also Colossians 2, where baptism is the New Testament equivalent, sacramental equivalent of the Jewish sacrament of circumcision. And I knew that for Jews, they take this little baby boy on the eighth day and they go to a mohel and the mohel does his snipping, but in the context of prayer and worship and liturgy. And they believe, all Orthodox Jews believe this, that on that eighth day, a cosmic event takes place. This little boy is transferred out of the kingdom of what some of them call darkness into the kingdom of light. He becomes a son in Abraham's family. He's a son of the Brit, the covenant. And now that boy didn't do anything to deserve that. He hasn't lifted a finger. He might be lifting his fingers, but he doesn't know why he's doing that. God... That circumcision, like baptism, is something that God does to him. And all of a sudden, you know, you know this, this, this was all in the space of a few weeks in my Greek New Testament, and overnight I became a sacramental Christian. Recovering the sacramental uh, you know, a vision I had as a boy, as a Catholic boy, but I never really got. So that's, so that's where I take... Um, I start there with Scripture. Now, uh, now, Ralph, I think you had your hand up. The 39 Articles of Religion. Uh, the 39 ar Articles of Religion um, are um, an exposition of the three creeds, you know, the three Anglican creeds, the uh, Apostles, the Nicene, the Athanasian, which ought to be read at least once a year in church, uh, in, in my opinion, and, 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 you know, they probably are here, and ought to be more than once a year because it's so rich. Uh, you know, properly understood. Um, so, so the 39 articles, um, like every confession, church confession of faith, um, are time-bound since we, we are men and women in, in history in certain times uh, responding to certain church and theological crises. And, and thus, any confession of faith we come up with is going to be shaped and formed, even if it's led by the Holy Spirit, by the, the particular problems, church and theological, of the day. 
Um, but the 39 articles, I, I think, are a very good expression of, of Anglican faith. Um, now, I could say a whole lot more about the 39 articles, but, but I think they, they ought to be restored as they are being restored by the ACNA to a much higher status than they had in tech, where tech put them in very little print at the back of the book. Uh, b because most of the theologians of tech um, didn't agree with them. And I think we historic um, Anglicans can learn from them and should learn from them. Uh, they, 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 you know, uh, um, they express a Catholic, small c Catholic sacramental theology. They express a small c Catholic doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. Um, they express a, um, uh, very importantly, for 21st century ACNA um, Anglicans, they express a historic, great tradition view of the relationship between Scripture and tradition. And that's something that Anglicans who come out of evangelicalism, many don't get. For, for, for many Anglicans and for all low church people, uh, tradition is a bad word. You know, tradition is something we shouldn't uh, embrace because after all, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for accepting their man-made traditions and not the commandments of God. But they don't listen to Paul who talks about tradition. Remember the tradition that I taught you in. Hold on to the tradition. Don't reject the tradition, Paul says. And Jesus, in fact, was defending proper um, tradition against bad tradition. So the question is not, for all Christians, uh, whether Christians should, should live by tradition instead of Scripture. Every Christian, whether he or she knows it, is living by some tradition. The question is not whether tradition, but which tradition. And, and, and I'll end on this note because I think we are running out of time. I, I, I would suggest to you that the Anglican way of thinking about God, the triune God, is to read Scripture, which is the Word of God, at the feet of the fathers. At the feet of the fathers. Let the fathers, and I would say, and, 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 and that's Richard Hooker, who was the greatest Anglican theologian of the 16th century. He's still part of the English Reformation of the 16th century, even though he's later. That's, that's his method. Read Scripture at the feet of the fathers. And when we instead think that, hey, I got the Holy Spirit, I'm born again, and I believe the Bible is the Word of God, and by golly, that's all I need. I'm just going to read the Bible for myself, by myself, and figure it out. Guess what? That is the method of liberal Protestantism, and you will become a liberal Protestant following that method, I assure you.